1: what kind of a show are you guys putting on here today you're not interested in art no well look we're going to do this thing we're going to have a conversation from chicago this is film spotting i'm josh larson
0: and i'm adam kempanar an evil is coming that threatens our kingdom our freedom but we
1: have a weapon they are not prepared for. It doesn't seem right to start a show devoted to movie queens with the voice of a king, but so it goes. John Boyega there as King Gezo in the trailer for The Woman King, which has Viola Davis leading a battalion of woman warriors in 19th century West Africa.
0: We'll have some thoughts on the Gina Prince-Bythewood historical epic, plus, yes... Our top five movie queens. That and more ahead on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. Josh, I'm of course interested to hear what you thought of The Woman King, but I'm even more interested to hear about your 4DX screening of oh, the Woman King. I, good gracious. I am so out of touch. I didn't know this was a thing. I have yet to have the 4DX experience. Do, do I have to wait
1: for you to tell me that? Or can you give me some nuggets now? Uh, I, I can fill you in and warn you far, far away. I had no idea what this was either, Adam. It was the only screening that worked in my schedule. And this should this should tell you what you're in for. You, I went up to the counter to get the ticket, said, here for the woman king, 305. And he looks at me and says, you know, it's 4DX, right? I said, same thing you didn't know. What is that? And he begins does to, that mean? to describe it. And I immediately figured, likely I'm going to be the only one in the theater. Um, you know, afternoon and a weekday. I said, you know what? If no one else is in there, is there any way you can turn it off? No, go He couldn't do it. So yes, maybe you did this at Disney. I think the Muppets show at Disney might've had some version of this. Not as bad as what I experienced. Basically, your sh- your seats... tilt, move, shake, at times punch you in the back. There was a water button that I had a choice of pushing on or off. I did leave it on for about two minutes until during an early fight scene, I was literally spritzed after like a throat was cut, which Uh what was supposed to be. Blood, but I'm sure it was like tepid water that had been sitting in the arm of the chair for three weeks. Disgusting. Fans are blowing on you. Lights are, strobe lights are flashing at you. It was miserable, Adam. I, at a certain point, I had to, whenever it would really start going during the fight scenes, stand Mm -hmm. up and just stand in the theater, like with my arms folded, (laughs) waiting for the seats. To stop so I could sit down again. I, I am sorry to anyone involved in inventing this technology. I'm sure a lot of work put into it. I'm sure some listeners enjoy it in some way, but it was pure hell. It is a miracle. Not old man Larson. It is a miracle that I enjoyed The Woman King as much as I did. It it might be an eight out of five star movie, Adam, but <laughs> but the 40X reduced it to the rating that I'm going to go with. Give us two
0: years, we'll be doing our top five 4DX movie experiences.
1: Oh, Lord Almighty.
0: (laughs) Later in the show, we'll share some non-4DX thoughts on the number one film with the (sighs) box office last weekend. It was Gina Prince-Bythewood's The Woman King. I also had a chance to catch up with Brett Morgan's David Bowie Fantasia Moon Age Daydream. We'll talk about all that and more. But first, movie Queens. Last week when we teased this top five, we were wondering just how rich of a topic this actually was. We did end up, I believe, with two picks in common, and that's because they're both really good picks from really good movies. But otherwise, Josh, we have standalone uniqueless.
1: Yeah. And I would say I know one of the crossover picks is something we both watched for homework. So that's always a good thing when these lists give us a chance to catch up with something for the first time. And we both like the film a lot and it sounds like the central performance as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Oftentimes with film spotting top five lists, we have to go through a whole explanation of what our criteria was. This one seems like
1: maybe your favorite movie Manimals. Pretty straightforward, <laughs> Josh. <laughs> well, I mean... Animals, I would argue, are quite a complicated concept. But yeah, we didn't want to overthink this one, right? I know some creative suggestions came in on social media. I love hearing those. I'll name a few in my honorable mentions. But here it was really a matter of going through the most notable portrayals of queens on screen, picking my favorites, and then trying to justify those picks. Think a little yeah. more deeply about them. Why is this a favorite of mine? What's interesting to say about it? So maybe there's. Themes that will arise as we go through our picks. I think most of mine probably reckon in some way with the personal and the political. How or if a woman can pursue her dreams, her desires while being a queen, true to her royal duties. That was not the case, though, with my first pick, Adam. We can dive right in here if you want. This pick, it's purely for the fun and the design of the performance. At number five, I'm going with the evil queen voiced by Lucille Laverne in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. Somehow, I couldn't find a place for the Evil Queen on my top five Disney villains list. I did that back in 2014 with Tasha Robinson. So I'm trying to make up for that oversight here. Lucille Laverne is the voice of the Evil Queen in Disney's first animated feature. It was her final film role after a stage and screen career that went back to the 19-teens. In her vocal performance here... What I really liked about it is she never loses her regality, even as the queen descends further and further into mad jealousy of Snow White. Magic mirror on the wall, who now is the fairest one of all? Over the seven
0: jeweled hills, beyond the seventh wall, in the cottage of the seven dwarves, dwells Snow White, fairest one of all. Snow White lies dead in the forest. The huntsman has brought me proof. Behold her heart. Snow White still lives, the fairest in the land. Is the heart of a pig you hold in your hand. The heart of a pig? Then I've been tricked.
1: That's Maroney Olson as the magic mirror, another key part of the film, of course. And this is a double role as the queen does transform herself into an old hag to trick Snow White. Laverne does the vocals there, too.
0: My voice. My voice. A perfect disguise.
1: Snow White. A landmark in animation, so I should probably talk about that aspect of the film as well. And it is that transformation scene, which is absolutely one of the movie's highlights. It starts with the queen's reflection in the goblet that she's holding, which has the magic potion. And then the fine lines and the sharp angles of the queen's character design, they get sucked up into this swirling psychedelic vortex. The camera even appears, you know, this being animation, of course, to move around her 365 degrees until we land on this rounded and bulbous form of the hag. It's incredible work that holds up after 80 some years. Now over on Twitter, Giovanni at Giovanni underscore C Giovanni backed me up with a gif of the evil queen and said this to me, the most compelling cinematic Queens are the evil ones. So I've got that covered here with my number five pick from snow white and the seven dwarfs.
0: As you talk about that great film and that great character, I realized that somehow, despite having 27 children, Josh, I can't recall actually watching that movie with any of them. Hmm. I have, I have utterly failed. It's a creepy one. It's intense.
1: Not one of those you want to just, you know, a little bit like Bambi in this way. You maybe think of the, the sweet parts with the dwarfs or the woodland creatures uh, at first, but then you get into it and yeah, there's some pretty trippy, creepy stuff in there. So maybe you wanted to avoid that for your kids.
0: My number five movie queen is Kirsten Dunst as Marie Antoinette in Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, a film I haven't seen since... It was reviewed here on Film Spotting many moons ago. Our producer, Sam Van Halgren, sitting in the chair opposite me, he was a huge fan of this film. I was a fan of it as well. And I went back and looked at my notes, the setup I did for Sam. I talked about how watching this film, you really have no sense of history at all. You know, there's no epilogue, there's no setup, but this makes sense for this film because in this world of Versailles, there They seem to live completely detached from the outside world. And it's as if Sofia Coppola took this character and removed her from history and just kind of put her out there in her environment for us to make whatever judgments we cared to. And I don't know a lot about Marie Antoinette, which is probably true for most people listening. Josh, don't we all think of her simply as a villain? A historical villain let them eat cake that's all we really know and what does Sophia coppola do she comes along and takes this historical villain and i found a great oral history about the making of this movie for its 15th anniversary over on vogue.com Sophia coppola says it my attitude was how would marie want a movie about her life to look now there are a lot worse historical villains I'm guessing, or I'm gonna go ahead and say Josh, than Marie Antoinette, but still the idea of sort of reclaiming her and redeeming her and allowing her to have a movie that Coppola wants to make in a reflection of her image or how she sees that image anyway, and is even thinking about whether or not it's something the subject herself might appreciate. It shows you what Coppola's endeavor was here. And She casts Kirsten Dunst, who she'd worked with on The Virgin Suicides. This was her third film. This was something else I referenced, Josh, in the setup through these three movies and in subsequent films from Coppola. There's this clear through line of characters being trapped, being literally restricted often to a single location. And we definitely get that here with Marie Antoinette being stuck inside the Palace of Versailles. She cast Dunce. She's an American. The writer Antonia Frazier explains in the oral history that she was initially pretty skeptical and eventually came around. And for how much creative license Coppola obviously takes, it's funny that she mentions that she cast Dunce in part because she's German and Marie was Austrian. So she thought there was a physical resemblance. Hmm. Otherwise, She describes Dunst as having a touching quality to her acting and having, quote, that sparkle that I can imagine Marie Antoinette had. Do I know you? No, I don't think so. Are you making any progress with her?
1: Possibly. Are you going to tell me who you are?
0: Are you? You see that. In This performance, though, what I think is compelling about Dunst as an actress is how that sparkle seems totally genuine, but also so easily can seem to mask some kind of duress or some kind of pain. And I think the combination of Coppola and Dunst here give us an opportunity to see. Marie Antoinette, as a real person, whether it's accurate or not, see her as a real person. Again, detach her from history so we don't see her through that lens of what she's been rendered to be. I think the scene where you probably see that sparkle the most, unfortunately, it's not a great one for radio here, for Sam to play as I'm talking, because Dunce doesn't really have any dialogue in it, but it's in that great bit of editing that occurs when we see Or here, actually, mostly, her finally consummating her marriage to Jason Schwartzman's Louis XVI, her reacting to the moment itself that it's happening, that glow the next morning, the afterglow as she sprawls out on the palace lawn and has that joyful expression on her face, just pure elation. And then the next cut, she's giving birth. and she has that glow and that same sense of elation and the sparkle then and what coppola captures so nicely is how that smile that moment with her husband when everyone thinks it's a boy is so potent and then it just dissipates slightly as it's
1: revealed that it's actually a girl and she knows what that portends for her marriage as you were describing that coppola interview you know talking about what Maria Antoinette might have wanted her life to look like on screen, it makes me think this movie does play at one level like a celebrity photo spread of her in vogue. You can see all of these images being something that would be splashed across some glossy magazine pages. And I think that's maybe the surface level to take Marie Antoinette, but for me, like The Bling Ring, particularly, and other of her films, it's one of those movies I appreciate more time each time I revisit it, and sometimes the very things that some dismiss as slight on a first viewing, the emphasis on aesthetics mainly, those prove to have a depth and a richness the more you immerse yourself in them, and I do think that's the case here with Marie Antoinette. I've, this is our first crossover. I've got it at number four. I think Dunst is fantastic in it, and the film overall It's incredibly rich text in its emphasis on these things that Antoinette surrounds herself with as a prisoner. You're right. She's almost embraced the trap. And much of the film is given over to her enjoying the trap, while what Dunst is showing all the time is that She feels or understands deep down that it is still really a trap. So you have the fabrics, you have the foods, all these extravagances of a court life. Um, She's less of a monarch than an entitled celebrity, just reveling in, in these endless shoes, the luscious desserts. And then, yes... The anachronistic touches like the 1980s modern rock. I actually have a dream, Adam, of picking this for Ebert Interruptus some year, where we go through a film frame by frame over the course of a week and getting Coppola to attend, because I think it would be so fascinating to dissect Marie Antoinette at that level. But. This other layer, you know, I'm talking about, it really does come from Dunst, I think, uh, in the ways you described, uh, that other level of awareness and sorrow that creeps into it. She taps into the helplessness of this life, even amidst its luxury. And the scene that I think also captures this is one where she's being told that the court members, they have the right to come into her bedroom and watch her dress each morning. Mother. At the
0: morning dressing ceremony, rights of entry are given to members of the high court. Major rights to princesses of the blood and mistresses of the household, while minor rights to the valets and charges.
1: That's Judy Davis laying those ground rules for her there as Dunst gets out of bed and she's just dazed with about a dozen eyes on her that this is actually going to be my life now. You can see that sinking in. Over on uh, my Larson Film Facebook page, Aaron Teachman went this direction as well. He said this, if you're making me pick just one, one movie queen, it's Dunst, who helps thoroughly humanize a famously heartless royal. In Sofia Coppola's telling, royalty is a metaphor for fame, and we see the many ways that the expectations and responsibilities of life at court slash being famous slowly erode Marie's ability to exist as her own person, an arc that Dunst performs so poignantly. So yeah, Marie Antoinette, I'm going with her, Kirsten Dunst, at number four.
0: Yeah, and as you alluded to earlier, the arc that Aaron just referenced is really maybe the overriding arc for this entire list. My number four is from a film that is... Far darker, literally, and figuratively, far more jaded and cynical than Marie Antoinette, but in the same vein, kind of takes this punk pop approach. And it's Yorgos Lanthimos, the favorite, Queen Anne, of course, performed by Olivia Coleman, for which she won a Best Actress Oscar. Queen Anne didn't know anything about her at all, Josh, before... I watched this film. She reigned for a relatively short time from 1702 until her death in 1714. She was only 49 years old. And for all of the historical liberties Lanthimos is clearly taking with this film, according to a Vanity Fair article that came out at the time of the movie's release, he isn't wildly off track with Anne, which is to say that he's tapping into potentially a pitiful quality about her. I would say a pitiable quality about her. I'm going to read from the Vanity Fair article that gives us some background on Anne, as the favorite comically attests, Queen Anne was an unremarkable ruler and ill-suited for the throne. She suffered from shyness and myriad health issues, including persistent eye-watering, gout, and obesity. Despite 17 reported pregnancies, Queen Anne failed to leave a single heir. Her pregnancies mostly ended in stillbirth or miscarriage. According to one biographer, Anne's education was astonishingly inadequate given that learned women at the time were not in vogue. Given this significant obstacle, Queen Anne had her advisor's script speeches and remarks she could present to foreign ambassadors, but impromptu conversation was a devastating challenge. And when Queen Anne found herself out of her depth, she would reportedly move only her lips and make as if she had said something when in truth no words were uttered. Now, I don't remember if a scene like that happens in... The favorite, but it absolutely could. I can see the director of Dog Tooth and this film injecting a scene like that because that is that is utter absurdity that is the kind of thing that would only happen in a royal house where everyone has to pretend that what's happening right in front of them maybe isn't happening right in front of them because the queen is actually doing it. so look, there is a pathetic quality to Coleman's Queen Anne that, again, seems as if it was rooted in reality. And she is, for a lot of the film, by various scheming characters, an object of derision. She's embarrassed frequently. I mean, the line that stands out to me in the film, I love when Rachel Vice says to her, you look like a badger. (laughs) And she just says it so plainly and matter-of-factly. But that's where Lanthimos really counts on Coleman, I think, to bring the necessary pathos. Mm -hmm. So we aren't just... Pitying and deriding Coleman's character the way other characters in the film are. I think there is a tragic element. Actually, the genius of the film, and I argue this during our review, is partly that all of the characters, no matter how terrible they are, the main characters, no matter how terrible and manipulating and conniving they are, there is a tragic element to all of them in that they all seem utterly incapable of happiness. And that's definitely the case with Queen Anne. It's Hildebrand's day today. which one is he? That one there. Shy but stubborn. May I? Oh, he likes you. I lost some 17 children. Some were born as blood. Some without breath.
1: And some were with me for a very brief time. Oh, my dear
0: although not an actual child like Marie Antoinette, not a teen, there is a childlike quality to Coleman's Queen Anne. There's something about her where she just seems to be constantly expressing this need to be loved the same way a child does. And in that way, she does stand alone from other queens on my list, not that they don't also exhibit human traits like that or are vulnerable or have emotion, but you don't really see as i recall you don't really see the opposite side of it from the queen which is that very forceful in control even if she's pretending you're aware here that she's always pretending if she's ever acting anything more than kind of put upon or needy
1: i'm ready for the russian ambassador who did your makeup we
0: went for something dramatic do you like it you look like a badger oh
1: Are you going to cry? Really?
0: Well, what do you think you look like?
1: Badger. Do you really think you can meet the Russian delegation looking like that? No. I will manage it. Go back to your rooms. Thank you. Yeah, she's very easily manipulated. And there's a lot of conniving, as you said, going on here. I do think there's a level of manipulation on her part too, which is connected with what you're saying about Coleman's performance that she brings to this. Of course, Coleman is going to bring an incredibly well-rounded portrayal of this woman. She has a weary ferocity because you sense she's weak and scared about that and lashing out almost like a dying animal in some scenes. So I... Gave a lot of consideration to Olivia Coleman in the favorite. Probably looking at my list here would be my number seven pick as I have it now. So definitely she's an honorable mention for me. Would you say maybe like a dying badger? You could. I suppose you could. I don't know. Don't know if I want to be that cruel, but sure. Let's go there. All right. My number three pick. This is Queen Elizabeth the First, played by Betty Davis in the private lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Now, this is one you flagged, Adam, Forrest. It didn't come up in my initial round of research. I, I noted that Betty Davis played Queen Elizabeth I in 1955 in The Virgin Queen, but somehow I had missed her earlier turn in the role, this 1939 play adaptation directed by Michael Curtiz, co-starring Errol Flynn as the Earl of Essex, and supporting performances by Olivia de Havilland and Vincent Price. So, by far the more interesting interesting and better regarded prospect. So I did check it out and Davis does make my list. It was really helpful, Adam, to have the context of our 2020 Betty Davis marathon while watching this. I'm not sure I would have fully appreciated what she's up to here without those other films Mm -hmm. under my belt. I think the word unapologetic came up a number of times during the course of that marathon. And that is how Davis plays Elizabeth, even though she's torn by, her conflicting desire for Flynn's Essex and her grip on power and how she doesn't know if giving too much to one is going to loosen the other. She doesn't play for the audience's sympathy for a moment, even less so than Mm. I think Coleman in the favorite. You've had word from him, haven't you? Yes, but I, yes, he wrote you, but not me. Or are you lying? I think you are. I think you lie to me. That's it. Lies, lies, lies. Trapped and strangling in a jungle of lies and deceit. You, you too. are the first making me believe you wouldn't betray him. No. No, I've gone mad. That is a great monologue, but I also like the physicality that Davis brings to this performance. She's always fidgeting with her fingers or tapping nervously a surface. And that has the wonderful effect of making these elaborate Elizabethan collars that she wears tremble at times, sometimes with passion, sometimes with rage. I thought of that, whatever that frilled dinosaur is in, in Jurassic Park, you know, where it just kind of bursts out around its head. A lot of times that's what these collars look like on Davis. This was an interesting choice for Davis to play An older Elizabeth to Flynn's Essex, even though they were almost the exact same age in real life. And she also does it under frightful white makeup, this garish red wig. In some scenes, her eyebrows don't even seem to be there. In others, they're kind of wildly painted on. But her instincts were right to do this, uh, especially even against the, the dashing Flynn. It's a hugely entertaining performance. It really is. And it's
0: my number three. I love it when homework pays off. I feel Betty Davis as Queen Elizabeth I absolutely belongs at this spot on the list. You said it, Curtiz, 1939, the year after Jezebel, which was my favorite film, if I recall correctly, from our Betty Davis marathon, the same year as Dark Victory, which we also talked about. It's the same year she won the Oscar for Jezebel as Queen Elizabeth is deeply immersed in this love hate relationship with Robert Devereaux, the Earl of Essex, who is played by Flynn and. I actually haven't seen a ton of Errol Flynn performances and watching him here just reminded me, Josh, that he must have been the prettiest man on the planet at the time. In fact, he must have been the prettiest person on the planet. Like, it's not it's not fair to Davis or any leading lady to have to compete with that. Maybe that's if why she
1: went the makeup route that she did. Maybe so. She figured I might as well go way the other direction.
0: But competing with each other is what the characters are doing throughout this film. And the movie would have us believe that they are both in love with each other. I'm not sure it completely pulls off uh. the the notion that they both are that deeply in love with each other. But she recognizes his ambition and doesn't fully trust him. And she's right too, because he is ambitious and he's seeking a certain title that carries a lot more weight than the Earl of Essex. You mentioned it, a great deal is made of Elizabeth's seniority. I looked this up. It's 1596 in the world of the film. Queen Elizabeth I was born in 1533. I don't think they ever allude directly to what her age is, but if you do that math, Betty Davis is playing a 63-year-old. Robert Devereux is born in 1565, so he's only 30 or 31. Right. And that's, that's exactly how old. You said it, both Davis and Flynn were at the time this is made. But yeah, she's caked in the makeup to make her look older. and She's got a rival in the younger girl from her court who's played by de Havilland who pines for Devereaux. You mentioned unapologetic. That's a great word. As hard as Davis can be in lots of roles, and we see it here, as rough and raw as she can be. The menace she brings sometimes to a performance is something we talked about a lot. That's on display here, too, at times. But what really does stand out in her portrayal of this royal, you were getting at it with the the ticks she has and the little nervous habits that she has. It really humanizes her. And in contrast to some other queens who may be talked about on our list, she is fragile. Davis doesn't have a problem expressing that side of her. She leans into the fragility. She leans into the volatility of having to maintain her status and fulfilling her duty while also being a woman.
1: Look, he can't answer. He daren't answer. If your majesty will let me tell you. Go on, then tell me. Unfortunately... It was you yourself who called the fleet back from Cadiz before my plans had been carried out. Unfortunately, the Spanish treasure fleet, with 12 million ducats, lies beneath the waters of Cadiz Harbor, sunk by the Spaniards themselves, while Essex, against the advice of Howard and Raleigh, gathered fame for himself by storming the town. There was no else to be done in honor, madam. It was for the glory of England. For the glory of Essex.
0: I had so much fun with this movie that after I saw it, I told my wife about the film. She had no idea as I didn't before I watched it about this relationship between the Earl of Essex and Queen Elizabeth the And I walked her through the whole thing and she did say, it sounds like it was made by a man. <laughs> and I think she is onto something to the extent that spoilers, the Earl Flynn character comes out as much as any character in this film can come out on top, he comes out on top. He gets to be the tragic hero. And I think Betty Davis's character just gets to be the tragic character in the film, but that doesn't diminish at all Davis's performance.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about the final image which is yeah. is pretty haunting and and does speak to that um and um yeah, he does he does play that part and there was some background I was reading up on about this negotiations over the title. Um you know, Flynn apparently wanting his character's name in the title. I think there's even an alternate title for this film that art imitating life. Yeah, well, thats imitating does, art. Yes, that does not have his name. So so there was probably a little bit of that behind the scenes and going on on screen as well. Well, not a queen, but a woman king next when we review the new Gina Prince Bythewood historical epic. Then finish up our top five movie Queens. Plus, Adam's review of Moon Age Daydream, a doc about one of our most regal rock stars, David Bowie. Stay with us. You're aware of a deeper existence. Are you there, David? David? Maybe a temporary reassurance that indeed there is no beginning, no end. And you find yourself struggling to comprehend a deep mystery. That's the one and only David Bowie in the trailer for Moon Age Daydream, director Brett Morgan's new documentary about Bowie. It's currently playing in limited release, including on IMAX screens. Morgan is the director of Cobain, montage of Heck, the Jane Goodall doc Jane, and the kid stays in the picture about producer Robert Evans. Adam, documentary, is that the right word for Moon Age Daydream? And did you see it in IMAX or 4DX? Fortunately, I only saw it
0: in IMAX, Josh. Though I'd love to know what the 4DX experience with Bowie and this film would be. Just a lot of glitter. Do not push the the water button. Do not push the water (laughs) button. (laughs) Good advice in general, I think, Josh. Based on my experience with Brett Morgan's work, you mentioned some of the titles, but I'm also thinking of Chicago 10 along with the Cobain documentary. I went into this kind of expecting an oral assault After all, this is a movie about one of the all-time great rock showmen and performance artists, and I do realize that's a reductive summation of his approach to documentary, but I also don't mean it pejoratively. I I like that non-talking head, immersive collage approach, which is what we get here, but what surprised me is the extent to which Morgan has done exactly what good filmmakers do. He tailored his style and form to match his subject so we get a thoughtful meditative almost transinducing rumination on the meaning of art and life because that's Bowie or at least the the journey that Morgan traces on screen with Bowie this movie charts the evolution of Bowie the extraterrestrial to Bowie the humanist Bowie the artist who is obscuring himself and who at one point we hear say that when you're a rock star, it's never really about the audience. What the rock star is doing has nothing to do with you or me. And he's not saying it in a dismissive way or an arrogant way. It's accurately, I think, describing the weird relationship that we have to our rock stars and rock stars have to their audiences. Nevertheless, as he unmasks himself and presents his true self to the world, to whatever extent anyone can do that, much less David Bowie, the more open he becomes. The less isolated he becomes, the more empathetic he becomes. All those things are, are interconnected. And I think you can get what I mean when I say meditative just from the beginning of the trailer that Sam played there. That line, you're aware of a deeper existence. I don't know where exactly that audio is taken from, the philosophy that Bowie is espousing there. It functions as sort of the narrative glue that guides us along. Morgan returns to it multiple times amidst all the interviews and music and performance scenes. You get Bowie's wisdom said in that kind of hushed, monotone voice, like a hypnotist <laughs> gently encouraging you along to some other plane. And in that way, Moon Age Daydream is an immersive oral experience. I brought a pen with me. I was trying to be a professional, Josh. I was going to take notes during this film. And apparently I grabbed a bad pen, no ink. Mm. Normally I wouldn't regret that. I mean, that would be disaster for you. That's really part of your process and you're great at it. You always got to have a backup pencil, Adam. See, this is where you think after all these years in the biz, (laughs) I would be better prepared. I normally wouldn't regret it, but here I really did because I lost count of the number of times I wanted to make note of an idea. And not a note about the film per se. I actually mean an idea, like something Bowie was wrestling with or Morgan was wrestling with through Bowie that provoked some idea or connection in me. And I want to be clear, I I was not high. (laughs) The movie will make you feel like you are though. One thing I wasn't able to jot down, but I do remember, and I want to end with this. I watched it two days after we taped our discussion of Blonde. And I was so struck by the similarities and differences between Marilyn Monroe and Bowie, Hmm. who I think you can also classify as a pretty famous blonde, despite all the, the red hair and other multicolored wigs he would put on. Pop culture icons. I'm not equating them necessarily in terms of suffering, but difficult family relationships and upbringings. Artists who become and then inhabited or were sort of stuck in character, in life, through the makeup, through the wigs, through their outfits. Norma Jean as Marilyn, David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, whoever. Audiences projecting onto them whatever they want to see and hear. But the key difference is watching how comfortable Bowie is in his artificial skin. And how uncomfortable and the way Dominic portrays it, how horrified and terrified Marilyn constantly is. And I have, I have two potential explanations if I'm giving credence to the portrayals that both films give us. One would be that Bowie was the type of artist, and Morgan does devote some real attention to this, the type of artist who had a myriad of ways to express himself. He just had that talent. He had those faculties. He wrote poetry. He obviously wrote music. He wrote screenplays. He could paint. He could sculpt. He was interested in producing films and video. Of course, he could also act and did often act. Marilyn was reliant on a system to allow her to express herself. She was also reliant on a system dominated by men, which leads me to my second thought, which is what if Bowie's ease with his persona and the ease to which he could express himself is actually tied back in some way to his gender. That he, because he was a man, was inherently afforded a freedom to grow and explore and challenge and provoke and perform without the threat of constant objectification. They were both objectified in their own ways. You become an iconic artist on the level that they both did. You're going to be consumed and commodified. What I'm trying to get at are the implications of why only one of the two was so much better at navigating that messy terrain. And that's just one of those connections, one of those ideas that while I'm in this trans-like state watching this film, those are some of the things I was thinking about. It really does kind of take you outside yourself, which seems appropriate for Bowie.
1: There's got to be a Warhol connection between the two also. Isn't there a an Andy Warhol a Bowie song, right? So I don't I don't know anything more beyond that, but just thinking of Warhol's, you know, interest in Monroe's image as mm-hmm. well. So yeah, makes makes sense, especially having just seen Blonde, that your mind would go there.
0: Moon Age Daydream is currently playing in limited release. It's expanding to more theaters this weekend. Next week here on film spotting. We are going to talk about Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling, and I saw your tweet earlier today,
1: Josh. You're bringing the heat. I mean, I was just asking. I, I'm not sure just where asking. things stand. I, I needed to uh. check it, check with the internet if we can like this movie. Um, yeah. You know, it's been dicey. Been dicey for Don't Worry Darling. Um, it's going to be a problem if this happens to be a pretty good film, which I kind of think it is, Adam.
0: I like it. I'm going to see it this weekend. We will talk about it. To what extent we will talk about it, how much time it will get is dependent on the top five we're currently planning to do. We are thinking something along the lines of and give us some leeway here to change the title or even change the topic. But we're thinking kind of of utopia gone wrong. Perfect idyllic situations that either become no longer that or as is the case With Don't worry, darling, at least based on what I've seen in the trailer, the one time I've seen it, Josh, idyllic, perfect situations that really aren't that at all. And no, when we say utopia has gone wrong, we're not referring to movie publicity tours gone horribly wrong. No, we're going to, we're going to keep to the film. We're going to do do our best. We're also going to have results from the current film spotting poll asking you, what is the funniest live action comedy of the last 10 years? We gave the people a lot of options, Josh.
1: Yeah, and I see Sam gave us in our notes here his favorite quotes. His favorite quotes from each each film. So I will read the title and then you okay. can do a little massacre theater here, Adam, for us. Yep, let's do it. Barb and Star, go to Vista del Mar. To me, a woman named Trish is a woman you can count on. Oh,
0: I love Trish. Book smart. Prepare to get consensually bashed. Game night. I don't remember who says this. Oh, how can I forget? Rachel McAdams. I I think. I'm pretty sure. Oh no, he died. (laughs) Girls' trip. Just grapefruit him. Pop star. My apple crumble is by far the most crumblest, but I act like it tastes bad out of humbleness. (laughs) Trip to Italy. Oh man, I can't do a, a Michael Caine. I'm not going to bury another Batman. I love that you gave yourself a warm-up there. I did My the death. To, that's how you do it. You have to say, Michael
1: Caine. <laughs> the death of Stalin. All the best doctors are in the gulag or dead. <laughs> Lastly, your last option if you're keeping track at this yeah. point. Yeah. What We
0: Do in the Shadows. Oh, man, I don't know what accent is perhaps being applied here. I don't remember this exact line, even though it's such a good one. I'm going to make it radio friendly. I think of it like this. If you're going to eat a sandwich, you would just enjoy it more if you knew no one had effed it. (laughs) I mean, really. Words of wisdom. (laughs) Shadows is really, no surprise here, Josh, way out ahead in this poll. And my first choice was... My beloved trip to Italy. It it needs to be more beloved, apparently. Oh not, no.
1: Not, not doing well. Film Spotty Nation has abandoned you they in have. your time of need. A24
0: now trip to Italy. <laughs> I I feel so out of touch, Josh. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We love to give away free things, Josh, and we have some digital passes to see the new Confess Fletch starring John Hamm taking over the role made famous in the 80s by Chevy Chase. Confess, Fletch is now in theaters, on digital and on demand. Ham does star as Fletch, an investigative reporter who becomes the prime suspect in a murder case and must figure out who really done it. I love Sam's question here. For a chance to win one of those digital passes, see the movie for free. All you got to do is email us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. In the subject line, put Fletch, or you can put John Cocktostin, and in the body, tell us an 80s comedy That is more quotable than Fletch. Mm. Because this may not be possible, you may also just admit that Fletch is the most quotable movie of the 80s.
1: Oh, man. Would you say that? I mean, it's all going to depend on... I think I have said it. I think Sam and I did this top five list. (laughs) Really? Okay. I probably only saw Fletch once or twice. So this is the kind of thing it's going to, it's going to have to be a movie you lived with, right? You just lived and oh, breathed. Yeah. And I guess, do you consider Ghostbusters a comedy or is that a different mm-hmm. genre? Is that no, action a comedy? comedy? That's up. the one That's that, that comes to mind that might give Fletch a run for its money.
0: Okay. Confess Fletch is now in theaters, on digital and on demand. It's rated R for Miramax. For those of you who are in the Iowa City area, You have a chance to see film spotting in its original 2005 era configuration going way back. Producer Sam is going to join me for a panel as part of Film Scenes Refocus Film Festival. This is a fest running October 6th through the 9th in Iowa City. The theme is celebrating the art of adaptation. They're reviving a festival that actually started back in the 70s, I believe, in Iowa City. The lineup is all new films, not classics. And they feature titles currently playing the festival circuit that fit some definition of adaptation. So it's not all just books, for example, Josh. And there are some really big, interesting titles in the lineup. Director Luca Guadagnino's new one, which reteams him with Timothy Chalamet, Bones and All, is, I think, the opening night. Film of the Fest, this is one I really want to see. Meet Me in the Bathroom, a new doc about the early 2000s New York music scene based on Lizzie Goodman's 2017 book. They do have a few rep titles, too. They're going to honor the passing of Jean-Luc Godard now with the screening of Band of Outsiders. And a film that may just come up here in our top five movie queen, Sally Potter's Orlando, which is loosely adapted from a Virginia Woolf novel, is also going to play. So 26 films over the four days and other performances over the four days of the fest. So Sam and I are going to sit down. We're going to do kind of a top five. We're going to talk about some of our favorite recent films that also happen
1: to be adaptations. That should be fun. I wish I could be there to watch it, to watch the OG film spotting. How about that?
0: Yeah, 4 p.m. on Sunday the 9th. And I think the biggest thing in terms of opportunities missed, Josh, is that the live audience there won't get to experience a fight between us about the right way to read books in relation to movies. Sam and <laughs> I on stage together, we agree. We see it the same you're way. Just,
1: you're just going to throw me under the bus, aren't you? Yep. Yeah, yep. That, you that's okay. You know why I, you know why I'm not going to be there, Adam? I'm going to be uh-huh. at home reading for the first time Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher, just preparing, just preparing for the upcoming adaptation I believe is on the way.
0: <laughs> okay. You do you, Josh. More information about the Refocus Film Festival is at
1: refocusfilmfestival.org. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a new pairing. It's Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. So they're going to look at Peter Jackson's 2001 film, The Fellowship of the Ring, and then follow that up with the consideration of the prime video series that is just underway, The Rings of Power. The Next Picture Show looks at cinemas present via its past your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Koski. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. All right. I don't know if we need more masquerade Theater, Adam, after your performance, your yeah, six, seven-time role mm-hmm. performance there uh, with I our poll question. A few times. I played myself a few times. <laughs> Fair enough. But let's let's do it anyway. The part of the show where we perform a scene, you get a chance to win a Film Spotting t-shirt a couple weeks ago. Adam and I masquered this scene.
0: John, you are my favorite photographer. Oh No, you are. I only want you to shoot me. (laughs) It's true. (laughs)
1: Uh, Oh, my God. I have the worst BO right now. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. (laughs) But listen,
0: um, let's all go out for a drink sometime. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. No, call me,
1: okay? Yeah, okay. All right, listen, I'm under Evelyn Waugh. Oh, 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 Shh. Okay? Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, arigato, arigato. Yeah, yeah. Ah! Mushy,
0: mushy. <laughs>
1: that was Giovanni Ribisi, Anna Faris, and Scarlett Johansson in 2003's Lost in Translation. Speaking of, Sofia Coppola, who wrote and directed that one a couple of weeks back, along with that massacre, Adam and I reviewed George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing, and we talked Barbara Stanwyck in Howard Hawks' Ball of Fire. So why that scene from Lost in Translation? Well, I'm going here with Rachel
0: Zalutsky. Could be Zalutsky. I apologize, Rachel. She's in Chicago. The main connection I see to the episode is the lonely feeling of being in a strange land and the sense of ennui that is expressed in 3,000 Years of Longing. And Sofia Coppola's masterwork. Also, maybe a reach. Gary Cooper and Ball of Fire represents an academic exploration of language and
1: translation. I like that. Works for me, Rachel. Here's Ben Kaplan. Besides the obvious connections between this film and 3,000 years of longing in terms of two individuals isolated in a hotel in a foreign country, it also offers philosophical similarities regarding longing for purpose and the meaning of life. But as with the Stanwick film discussed on this week's pod, each of these films is an unlikely romance. While Ball of Fire and 3,000 Years of Longing are more straightforward in terms of their romances, Lost in Translation is absolutely a romance, whether you like it or not, as unconventional as it may be. Love the show and love this segment, even if I don't always know the answer.
0: Well done, Rachel and Ben. And to everybody who entered, we do have one winner, Josh, reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat a lot of love for this film appropriately and a lot of people who seem to have been able to identify it by mushy mushy (laughs) at the end that was the dead giveaway reach in and pick out this week's winner our winner is jason hensley from fort worth texas congratulations jason email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting (laughs) t-shirt
1: Margot just doesn't miss performances. If she can walk, crawl, or roll, she plays. The show must go on. No, dear. Margot must
0: go on. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And we'll note for purists who will recognize this scene, recognize this movie immediately. Yes, we are changing one of the names to try to make it a little less obvious. I don't know that it's going to have much impact, Josh.
1: Yeah, and... Just again, to be clear for the purists, because there are people who are purists about this film, just the two of us, there's a third voice once or twice in this scene we're going to leave out. No Michael Phillips for this episode, so it's just going to be me and you taking the main dialogue.
0: That's right. Okay, you started off, so I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. And action.
1: You dirty little liar. I'm sorry, I could explain. Explain how you forgot to invite us to your party. You know I couldn't invite you. I had to pretend to be plastic. Okay, buddy. You're not pretending anymore. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music? And then just sit around and just soak up each other's awesomeness? You know what? You're the one who made me like this, so you could use me for your 8th grade revenge. God, at least me and Andy Davis know we're mean. You try to act like you're so innocent. Like, oh, I used to live in Africa with all the little birdies and the little monkeys. You know what? it's
0: not my fault you're like in love with me or something what and scene Scene. (laughs) that was good i i okay playing it you're playing it all cool right now josh but i know this is exactly how it's going to be after the film fest in iowa city (laughs) pretty much just sam and me hanging out together i'm already feeling that way
1: where do you think i channeled all the anger i know i know it felt very real If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Deadline is Monday, October 3. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks.
0: My king, the Europeans wish to conquer us. They will not stop until the whole of Africa is theirs. We must fight back for our people. You're asking me to take them to war. War. Some things are worth fighting for. Don't know That's from the trailer for the film that inspired our top 5 list this week, Gina Prince-Bythewood's The Woman King, which opened wide last weekend. Before we dive back into that top 5, we're going to spend a few minutes here on the movie which topped last weekend's box office. The based-on-fact epic is set in the early 19th century West African kingdom of Dahomey and tells the story of the Ogoje, the kingdom's elite all-female unit of warriors. Viola Davis is Neniska, the unit's leader, who has the king's ear and is trying to persuade him to stop collaborating with European slave traders. The King is played by John Boyega. Lashana Lynch plays Davis's first-in-command. She's got fingernails sharpened to spikes, the better, you know, to pluck out men's eyes with. And the South African actress, Tuso Mbedu is a stubborn young woman abandoned by her family who trains with the Agogé. She may be familiar to some as Cora in Barry Jenkins' Underground Railroad. This film, Josh, debuted at the Toronto Film Festival to a lot of raves, I'm sure you came across some of the same letterboxed entries that I did. Just an absolute fastball down the middle, said David Sims from Blank Check and The Atlantic. Our friend Mariah E. Gates said this effing rips. Are you going to join the chorus? Does this movie live up to the hype?
1: I mean, I liked it. Maybe I'm not that high on it just because I didn't see it in the festival, uh, you know, venue, perhaps. But I thought it was quite good. I appreciated it mostly, I would say, as a widening of history. And that isn't to say this is historically accurate in every way. I've already uh, appreciated reading uh, one or two pieces that talk about, you know, the actual kingdom of Dahomey and how it aligned with some of the things in the film and did not in other ways. So I'm not saying that to say that this is, you know, historical record, but it's definitely doing something different in terms of acknowledging the role of women in African military history, giving a more complicated depiction of the African slave trade. Again, that's not complete either, but it's different than what we've gotten in previous Hollywood historical epics, and I liked that. I liked learning to a certain degree about some of this and just the overall flavor that it gave to the movie. I think the strength of the film is the cast, what these actors do, particularly Davis. She just has, as you would expect, both fiery resolve and a deep sorrow to her portrayal here. She's the highlight, but I do think Tuso Mbedu is very good as this uh, young recruit and Lashana Lynch jumps out as well. Gets way more to do here than she did in the Bond film, where I felt like she was just, just kind of wasted, actually, in that part. And here you get to see that fire that she can bring to the screen. What all three of them and some of the others do is they just make these power plays, geopolitical power plays that the movie is largely involved in, some court palace intrigue as well. They make all of that feel really personal, and each of these women has a personal reality they're struggling with that is connected with the larger political forces at play that registers because of the performances. I think the screenplay to me can get a little, uh, you can tell this movie wants to be a hit. So there's a lot of crowd pleasing conventional that's beats, a good way of putting it, you know, yours. and, and maybe, maybe that's just me. What held me back. There's a romantic subplot did not work at all for me, but, the other things do carry this for me. The action, I think, is great. Prince Bythewood gives a lot of... Uh, it's clean and ferocious at the same time, the action. I think she brings a lot of musicality to some of the other sequences, too, especially the ones depicting Dahomey cultural rituals. So, yeah, overall, favorable in this film. If I'm not quite as high on it as, as others, it's those reservations I've given.
0: Well, it turns out we saw the exact same film, where we diverge is just in terms of to what extent... We're going to let the favorable aspects outweigh maybe some of the less favorable. I'm definitely less high on this than most. I think people are overrating it, or I should say I'm a little surprised at just how effusive the praise is, but only a little surprised. And you touched on this. It's crowd-pleasing nature. Despite some of the suffering it depicts, it's undeniably rousing and uplifting. There's a testing scene, I'll describe it, like the final challenge to become an Agogé that's as thrilling as anything I've seen this year, I mean, I was about ready to get up and cheer in the theater. You've got Viola Davis naturally being an absolute force. And because of the structure of it, she's actually kind of upstaged by Lashana Lynch and arguably by the real yeah, protagonist. It's not entirely film. her story, is it? It's not. It's really more Mbedu's story. And she's not only up to the challenge of acting opposite Lynch and Davis, she's propelling some of those scenes forward with her performance. And then in terms of its point of view, you talked about its refreshing perspective, empowered. And that, that is too light of a word to use for these characters. Empowered black women are fighting the oppression of the patriarchy and the oppression of slave traders. There is certainly no question here about who's morally righteous and who's morally repugnant. And the movie sides with the righteous, which means we as the audience get to walk out feeling really good, except for reasons you did get at Josh. I didn't buy much of it. I thought the script was predictable. I thought it hit every conventional beat in cliche. I thought overall, despite the depth the performers bring to it, I think they have to do a lot of work that the script doesn't give them. I think the characterization and the character development are slim, And it's all predicated on way too many contrivances. Sam, our producer on Letterboxd, kind of paraphrased, I think his son, Dave here, he said, it's basically a Marvel movie, except better. There's no magic stones or multiverses, no capes or quippy dialogue, just badass warriors slicing up bad dudes. And truly, these 1820s warriors might as well be Wonder Woman. There is so many flips and spins in this, Josh. And at one point, Davis blocks a bullet. I think with her wrist. Oh, am I wrong?
1: No, she uses her blade. It's a great moment because it because it combines her ferocity again, but also her vulnerability. I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, she holds, and I may have been thrown out of my 4DX seat at this point, so I don't know. But she holds her blade up and catches the bullet. I think it knocks it out of her hand. So she's kind of vulnerable, and then I believe the warrior next to her either picks it up or hands her a blade, and then she charges forward. So I thought right. that was a great bit.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's a nice little bit, and overall, those scenes are exciting to watch, don't get me wrong, but I wouldn't go Marvel for the comparison. It It all played out to me like a Disney movie, and I mean one made for kids except hmm. with copious throat slitting and even that is tame in order to maintain the PG-13 rating so blood is actually relatively scarce that's why they just gave you water josh there's there's no <laughs> there's no blood in this film I, I i don't know what's accurate and what isn't but watching Dahomey women staring off into sunsets with cheerful music twinkling underneath felt phony
1: okay All of that is there. I think you're underselling the moments where it tries to nod to complications, but it sets a trap for itself in doing so. Mm -hmm. It definitely acknowledges that this kingdom was involved in enslaving the people, as I understood it, of other kingdoms that it captured. And so it talks about the complicity that some Africans had in the trade but it doesn't really want to wrestle with that. It acknowledges it, but then as you're saying, wants us to clearly draw the lines by making Davis's character be all in favor of freedom, right? She has this whole plan that the kingdom should only prosper off of palm oil, not off of not the way the Europeans are by using people as products. So there's it's it's a tough thing because I do think the movie It's honorable that it wants to dig into some of those issues more deeply than, Mm -hmm. I would argue, a Disney children's movie or a Marvel movie would. It's way more interested in these things than those types of films would be. Yet in doing so, it sets itself up for something that is not going to allow it to be the crowd pleaser it really wants to be. And so it gets caught. I agree. It gets caught yeah. in that trap. I think it's just a degree of of how much that that bothered each of us, probably.
0: Yeah, though I, I want to be clear, actually, when I talk about phonious, I'm not really thinking about that element. I'm actually just talking about the way a movie can let you down in terms of its actual narrative construction mm. and going with those conventional beats and the cliches and the lack of surprises across the board and especially the contrivances. It is not that, surprising. You are yeah, very it, correct it's there. Not, right. It's so not. at some point, all the things I found myself enjoying about it, they were undercut by it. And maybe I just felt it a little bit more than you here, Josh, with the woman king, which again is still out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, love to hear your feedback. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That, Gets us back nicely, Josh, to our top five movie queens. We have shared our five, four, and three. We both had Betty Davis from The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. We both had Marie Antoinette, Kirsten Dunst as Marie Antoinette in Sofia Coppola's film. We went separately with Queen Anne. Olivia Colman from The Favorite made my list at number four, and you had? The Evil Queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, voiced by Lucille Laverne. We have two unique picks here
1: for our top two. Start us off. At number two, I have Cleopatra, played by Elizabeth Taylor in Cleopatra. Pretty sure I've mentioned this before, how I went to see Cleopatra at the Music Box's 70mm Festival a few years ago. I'll admit, for me, mostly out of morbid curiosity, but debbie and my daughters were interested we usually try to make that a family event so this was one we all agreed on mostly knew of its reputation as a colossal disaster starring elizabeth taylor so imagine my surprise when i loved it and yes all four hours of cleopatra the pageantry on display here the director is joseph l mankowitz it makes the other queens on my list look like Paupers. They don't know how to live, Adam. They don't know how to do it compared to what you see here. This is especially true for the nine-minute sequence of Cleopatra's arrival into Rome. We have a parade of dancers, soldiers, musicians. It all culminates in Cleopatra's entrance on a towering replica of a Sphinx pulled by gotta be a hundred bare-chested men. She's encased in this gown and cape of gold feathers, gets carried down. To Caesar, on the backs of more men, and here's where we get to the performance. Taylor calmly approaches him, playfully bows, and then gives him a wink. So, like Dunst in Marie Antoinette, Taylor is giving an anachronistic performance here in this historical drama that somehow works. Her Cleopatra is brash. She's carnal. She's very smart. She's a woman conqueror, especially in her scenes with Richard Burton as Mark Antony. You could not hold the territories under your command. True? Possibly. Then Lord Antony, you come before me as a suppliant.
0: If you choose to regard me as such.
1: I do. You will therefore assume the position of a suppliant before this throne. You will kneel. So if Cleopatra ever rolls through your town, preferably in 70 millimeter, Grab those tickets. I really don't think this one would work as well on the couch. I pr- I probably would have drifted off at some point. I needed 70 millimeter for me to, to fully appreciate this.
0: I promise you that if I ever do finally catch up with Cleopatra, it will be in 70 millimeter and it will almost certainly be at the music box. There you go. My number two movie queen is following Betty Davis, another all time great actress And that's Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine from The Lion in Winter. This was a movie we talked about as part of a bonus conversation for our patrons when we were doing our Anthony Hopkins top five and filling in some blind spots.
1: Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to remember.
0: Disappointed that they didn't go with magic, but then I'm really glad (laughs) I finally did see The Lion in Winter and that I can praise this performance and it can rate so highly on my list. Ebert, back in 68, when it came out, loved this movie, gave it four stars, and he nailed the biggest reason why The Lion in Winter is so good. He said, one of the joys which movies provide too rarely is the opportunity to see a literate script handled intelligently. Of course, if you don't have a skilled performer or a skilled set of performers intelligently handling that script, it doesn't really matter how literate it is. And This James Goldman screenplay, adapted from his play, has Hopkins and as King Henry II, Peter O'Toole and not giving up an inch to him is Catherine Hepburn. Mm -hmm. It all takes place mostly in one day around Christmas. Henry is trying to decide which one of his sons will inherit the crown. You know, that old yarn Eleanor's determined that it be Hopkins Richard. So you get a conniving Hepburn you get a caring, maternal Hepburn. You get a dutiful servant of England Hepburn. And mostly you get a hilarious Hepburn who bickers and banters with O'Toole and delivers Goldman's barbs with delightful fervor.
1: How hard do you find living in your castle? It was difficult in the beginning, but that's past. <laughs> Fine. I've seen the world enough. I'll never let you loose. You led too many civil wars against me. And I damn near won the last one, still, as long as I get trotted out for Christmas courts and state occasions now and then, for I do like to see you. It's enough. I'm famished. Let's go into dinner. Arm in arm. And hand in hand.
0: I chose that scene, Josh, but it was really hard to choose which bit to play from this film because I enjoy the dialogue and I enjoy Hepburn delivering that dialogue so much. And you mentioned the anachronistic quality to Elizabeth Taylor's performance in Cleopatra here. It's, it's laced into the screenplay itself. There's a knowingness, a little bit of winking that I find really refreshing here. Another line I love is when she says as her son's actually do pull knives on each other. She says, of course he has a knife. He always has a knife. We all have knives. It's 1183 and we're barbarians. (laughs) That's (laughs) it. (laughs) Which I love because I think I'm accurate in saying you can read two different ways. You can read it anachronistically as if she's actually somehow saying from a vantage point of the future saying, you know, this is the dark ages essentially. We're barbarians. Or it's as if she's saying, The contradiction, ironically, it's 1183, and yet we're still barbarians, right? Mm, It reads both mm -hmm. ways. She has another line where she says, I know, you know, I know, I know, you know, I know. We know Henry knows, and Henry knows we know it. We're a knowledgeable family. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's great. And of course, Hepburn has so much more dexterity with that language than I just offered. She also has the great line, in a world where carpenters get resurrected, everything is possible. She won her third Oscar for the performance. And although I haven't seen enough of the other nominees from that year to say she deserved it, I'm definitely not going to say she was undeserving based on her take on Eleanor of Aquitaine.
1: She's wonderful. You like this movie way more than than I did, but um, she was definitely the highlight for me. In addition to all the great comedic stuff you talked about, I love the Knives line. It's so good. I also think of that soliloquy she gives uh, Mm -hmm. to a mirror where she's talking about her, her persistent beauty, really, which is also another meta layer, right? Because at this point Hepburn was in the fourth decade of her career. So a veteran actor and layering it with a lot of meaning. So I'm behind this pick. You've got it. Number two. That brings us to our number one choices. Well, We're partly doing this list, yes, because of the woman king, but also the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, Adam. And so it seems only fitting to include a portrayal of her on screen. I'm going with Helen Mirren's turn in 2006's The Queen, written by Peter Morgan and directed by Stephen Frears. So this speculates on the -the behind-the-scenes turmoil that engulfed the royal family in the days following Princess Diana's death. And just as the discourse in the wake of Elizabeth's death has varied, it seems, from emotional distress for this beloved figure to absolute detest for someone who is seen to represent oppressive colonialism, Mirren, in the performance, manages to evoke, to me at least, both sympathy and disgust. Where you land on that You know trajectory, you may interpret it a little differently, uh, but it does seem to me that Mirren is trying to capture and does capture a lot of these qualities. I think she does it by getting a hold of what I think at least seemed to be a true quality of the real woman, stoicism. I mean, that was even part of her public persona, this stoicism that here in the Queen, it could be cold, it could be cruel. There are scenes of cruelty for sure, but it also involved this sort of, honorable steadfastness that this position demands
0: nowadays people want glamour and tears the grand performance i'm not very good at that i never have been i prefer to keep my feelings to myself and foolishly i believe that was what the people wanted from their queen not to make a fuss nor wear one's heart on one's sleeve duty first self-second that's how
1: i was brought up for all my complaining about biopics, Adam, I've got to say, this is a very, very good one. I appreciate the focused time frame that we have, the complicated portrayal of its central figure. This is not a lionization of her at all. And the standout performance and the Oscars agreed. Mirren did win an Oscar for the queen. I don't know if it's out of fashion
0: or if it was ever in fashion to like or dislike this movie, but I remember... Being a fan of it back in 2006 and of this performance, I'm looking at my notes now from my top five performances of 2006, and I had Helen Mirren as Queen Elizabeth II there. I thought that she did a really great job of playing the role without sort of condescending to the character, perhaps putting that modern spin on it and letting us know that she knows she's playing a character who maybe is a little bit reprehensible, but of course, Mirren being the pro that she is doesn't bring that judgment to the role at all. And you're used to seeing Mirren as someone who has so much vivacity and energy and kind of cattiness. And here, as you said, she's playing someone stoic and she has to kind of sublimate all of that, but she still doesn't make her Queen Elizabeth boring at all. So great pick for your number one. My number one is from a film that I saw back when I was a film student studying at the University of Iowa. And I took a class on British film and Thatcherism. This movie just blew my mind at the time. Sally Potter's Orlando. The performance is Quentin Crisp as Queen Elizabeth I in Orlando. And I'll give you a little bit of background on the plot. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar with it, you'll understand why it was mind-blowing at the time. It's set just before the death of Queen Elizabeth in 1603, and she promises this nobleman that he can have a tract of land and build a castle on it, basically be set up for life However long life is, for eternity, it seems, as long as he heeds her call to not fade, not to wither, do not grow old, the Queen tells Orlando. And Orlando has the ability, it seems, Josh, in this magical world, to pull that off and lives in the castle for a couple of centuries, but then at one point travels and is almost killed, wakes up and finds that now. He's transformed into a woman. It's Swinton playing both of these roles, of course, Orlando as man and woman. And this is the surreal sort of magically real universe that Sally Potter gives us within this historical epic. And, of course, you've got a man, Quentin Crisp, playing Queen Elizabeth, 83 years old, playing Elizabeth at 67. Audiences at the time in England would have been familiar with Crisp and would have brought that to their reception of the performance. What I certainly had no context for at the time was that Potter was playing with Crisp's real life persona, which is described in a Clio journal article as an eccentric gay writer known for his tousled hair and painted nails. That article is really good. I'll link to it in our show notes. It's called Powdering Her Face, Queen Elizabeth I and Camp Iconography from Quentin Crisp to Beyonce. It tracks Elizabeth from Crisp to a performance we haven't mentioned yet. Curiously, Kate Blanchett in Elizabeth to Dench, Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love and Beyonce in her promotional posters, actually, for her Mrs. Carter World Tour. The writer says this, while Capers' film, speaking of the Blanchett version, highlights the camp sensibility of Elizabeth I, he is not the first. This historical figure has been frequently co-opted as a conduit for camp provocation, as well as for feminist and queer subversions. Most notable is Quentin Crisp's performance as Elizabeth in Sally Potter's Orlando, which not only articulates Virginia Woolf's critique of gendered identity from the book on which the film is based, but also transforms Elizabeth into a postmodern camp icon. And rewatching scenes from this today, Josh, you just see the kind of subdued devilishness that Crisp brings to his Elizabeth. There's a little bit of recognition on his part of the provocation of this whole endeavor, but without overplaying it, without winking at the audience too much. That's really, I think, the the trick of the performance. And because of that, because of the subversion that he and Potter are engaged in and how well they pull it off, this, for me, was for sure going to make my list, and I've got it all the way up at number one. You see soon after how she fades and falls away. So passes in the Is this a worthy topic? From one so clearly in the bloom of youth to one who would desire it still. fair
1: Virgo, gracious majesty. Your um, bloom is legendary. And these were, of course, not the sentiments of our son, uh, but of a poet. Now, what would please you? All that is mine is here for your pleasure.
0: All you call yours is mine already.
1: <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. And somehow I've never seen this one, even though I do remember it being this breakout for Swinton. So I will have to rectify that. Those are our top five movie queens.
0: Now I mentioned Elizabeth, the Kate Blanchett, film josh and i imagine that's an honorable mention for the both of us
1: yeah it's number six for me we're going to be in trouble that we didn't include it on either of our lists i think she is so good there and as you mentioned a breakout for her too you could also include her as Galadriel in Lord of the Rings as a queen performance. I think so Blanchett, a natural for these types of roles. Speaking of Tilda Swinton, an honorable mention for me was her white witch slash queen in the Chronicles of Narnia. I also considered Angela Bassett's Queen Ramonda in Black Panther. We've got Wakanda forever coming up here. And so she was top of mind for me. I think she's really good in that film. Judy Dench. She came up in passing, Adam, but three times a queen, not once on our list. She played Elizabeth I in Shakespeare in Love, Queen Victoria in Mrs. Brown, and Queen Victoria again in Victoria and Abdul. So I said earlier, we got some fun suggestions on social media, and I wanted to mention this one that came in from Chris Carlson at Rock1991Punk on Twitter. Her Majesty of the House of Xenomore. So... <laughs> course referencing the alien queen of aliens i like that and then i have to apologize adam to our own pa betty lavandero and a friend of mine kate myrick they both suggested julie andrews queen clarice rinaldi from the princess diaries just made me feel terrible made me feel like a bully to have to report that even with julie andrews in it who of course is quite charming and even with Anne Hathaway in the film, I'm not a fan, was not a fan, I should say, when the Princess Diaries came out. So due for a reappraisal, I'm sure. I, I will I will pay my penance on that one.
0: Yeah, I had to keep this top five a secret from my daughter Sophie, because if she knew that I wasn't going to mention the Princess Diaries because I still haven't seen it, and that you weren't that big of a fan of it, she would revolt. See? And we can't we can't have that.
1: Dangerous territory
0: we're in. Yeah. You really covered any of the films I was going to mention, the ones that stood out for sure. Not only Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love, but The Queen, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and the Kate Blanchett, Elizabeth. Those are our top five movie queens. We can't wait to hear which ones we mistakenly omitted or should have considered. You can email us that feedback and any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh,
1: that is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting and I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which asks, What is the funniest live action comedy of the last 10 years? To order show t shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter.
0: Out on digital this weekend, A Jazzman's Blues, that's a period drama from Tyler Perry. In limited release, you can see Blonde, it's opening here in Chicago, comes to Netflix on 928, we discussed that last week here on Film Spotting. Catherine Called Birdie is also out, a teenage girl in medieval England navigates life and tries to avoid the arranged marriages her father maps out for her. That's based on Karen Cushman's award-winning children's book, Lena Dunham directs in wide release you can see a re-release of avatar you know if you're into torture you want to go and with me adam are we gonna no, go no i'm I'm good with not reappraising that just yet also olivia Wilde's don't worry darling which josh has seen i will see we'll give it sometime for sure on next week's show and we're also going to have a top five that ties back to that film maybe something
1: like utopia has gone wrong you'll have to tune in to find out Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
0: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at FilmSpottingFamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at FilmSpottingFamily.com.